Amen. Well, it's good to see you all here this morning. We are going to continue this morning in our series in the book of Philippians. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 16. Philippians chapter 3, and this morning we're going to look at verses 12 through 16, and I will focus specifically on verses 12 through 14, okay? Philippians chapter 3, and uh, I'll begin reading for us in verse 12. This is God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, And if in anything you might think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Amen. Well, in 2002, Gary Keller and Jay Papasan wrote a book entitled The One Thing. The subtitle was The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. The book was very popular and eventually became a bestseller. And the book's basic premise was that if you want big results, you need to go small. If you want to go big, you got to go small. In other words, you got to find the one thing that is the most important thing, and you need to focus all of your effort and attention to that one thing, make that your priority, and then you will see the biggest results. The idea is that concentrated effort on the right thing will lead to the greatest results. In some ways, the book is based on an old Russian proverb. If you chase two rabbits, you will not catch either one. Think about that for a moment. If you chase two rabbits, you will not catch either one. If your focus is divided, so will be your efforts and your results will suffer. Well, folks may I thought the book had a number of helpful things, helpful insights in it, but folks may debate the value of Keller and Papasan's insights for leadership and business, but but it is true that the success of our spiritual lives is dependent upon our commitment to a singular focus, a priority of one thing above all other things. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or when the lawyer came to Jesus and he asked him the question, Jesus, what is the greatest of all the commandments? Jesus responded by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And with all your mind, this is the great and the first commandment. You see, Jesus was pointing the lawyer to the one thing, to that thing which is of ultimate purpose and ultimate importance. The Apostle Paul we see in our text this morning was a man who lived with a singular focus. The Apostle Paul epitomizes one who was committed to an undivided devotion who was marked by a concentrated zeal. The Apostle Paul was a man who had discovered what really matters in life, and he gave himself to it 
completely and entirely. As a result, his life mattered. It mattered in this life, and it mattered in the life to come. And so this morning, I want us to consider the singular devotion of the Apostle Paul. And I want us to consider it in three parts. First, we'll consider the one thing. Then secondly, we will consider the how. And then third, we will consider the why. And I want you, as we walk through these parts this morning, these aspects of Paul's message, I want you to ask yourself the question, what is it that I am chasing in life? We are all chasing something. Ask yourself the question, what is it that I am chasing in life? What is my singular focus? What am I really after in life? And at the end of your life, will it result? Will it result in a life that is truly successful, in a life that matters for now and for all eternity? First of all, let's consider the one thing. What is it in this passage that we see? What is it that is the one thing that the Apostle Paul is after? If you're just dropping in in chapter 3, verse 12, it might be a little unclear. You notice there in verse 12, we read these words. Not that I have obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So, so you see there, the, the, the immediate question is, well, what is the this? What is the it? What is it that Paul is after? But of course, Paul didn't just start here in verse 12. Actually, there's a context that comes before this. We actually looked at these verses on Easter Sunday. Back in verses 7 through 11, the verses that come just prior to this, Paul makes it more clear what it is that he's after. Look there in chapter 3, verse 7, and we read these words. Paul says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order, here it is, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So so what is it that Paul is after? What is it that Paul is chasing? He is after Christ. Simply put, he wants to know Christ. He wants to know Him personally. He wants to know Him in His death. He wants to know Him in His resurrection. He wants, him to know, he wants to know Christ in the hope of the resurrection, that He will one day be with Christ forever. This is the one thing that the Apostle Paul has set his life on. And he makes this even more explicit as you go a little bit further down in the text. In verse 13 and 14, he says, But one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Here it is, verse 14. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's just another way of saying he wants to know Christ in this life and in the life to come. Now that phrase there, actually, where he says in verse 14, 
I want, I'm, I'm press on toward, and here it is, the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That could be a little bit confusing. What seems like that's pretty wordy. What does that actually mean? So I want us to take just a moment here to break this down, okay? So notice that Paul is after, first of all, he says a goal, okay? So there's a goal that he's after. And the goal is a prize, He says, I press on toward the goal of the prize. So we can think now in terms of a race. This is the type of imagery that Paul is using here. Paul is engaged in a race. He's after the goal. And at the end of the race, there's a goal. And that goal is the prize, to win the race. And then he goes on. He says, it is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, he refers there to the call of God. And when Paul speaks of the call of God, Paul is not just referring to kind of God's general invitation to all people to come to himself. But Paul actually, in a number of places throughout the New Testament, uses this language, and he uses it very specifically. He doesn't use it to refer to the general invitation of God, but rather he uses it to refer to the sovereign summons of God in which God calls his people to himself and he ensures their willing response. So, for example, Paul speaks of himself this way in a number of places. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, he introduces himself. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So what he's saying there is that God called him and he set him apart to save him and for this work of being an apostle. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Or in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Paul writes, But when he who had set me apart before I was born called me by His grace, He was pleased to reveal His Son to me. So He called me, and in calling me, He revealed His Son to me so that I would know who Jesus is and I would trust Him and follow Him. The one, though, that really seals it up and gives us, very, gives us clarity on what Paul means by this call is Romans chapter 8, verse 30. The Apostle Paul writes there, "...and those whom He, that is God, those whom God predestined, He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in other words, those whom God purposed to save, he calls them. And when he calls them, he ensures their willing response so that they are then justified. That means they're made right before God because they trust in Jesus and his atoning death and his righteousness. And they are glorified, all those who are called are glorified. They are ultimately redeemed in Christ and spend eternity with Him. And so the Apostle Paul would tell us that when we receive this call, we don't respond to this call of God by saying, oh, well, I'm not sure. I kind of have other plans. No, when God calls us with this call, when He speaks into our lives and sovereignly summons us to Himself, we respond in faith In obedience, we trust in Jesus and we follow Him. And Paul says here, this is what he's after. He's after the goal, the prize of the upward call. Now notice there, he says it's an upward call. That's interesting. 
Because actually the Apostle Paul received the call of God in his life from heaven. Right? Literally so. Do you remember the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus and he was going to persecute Christians, to imprison them, perhaps to kill some of them? And the Lord Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, appeared to Paul on the Damascus road. And Jesus spoke to the Apostle Paul. We read about it in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. Luke records, Now as he, that is Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, Paul, then he was Saul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The Lord Jesus called him literally from heaven to repentance and to faith and to follow him. And then the Apostle Paul refers to this call. He says it's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, when God calls us, he always calls us to Jesus. He calls us to faith in the Lord Jesus, to believe in Him, to trust Him, to follow Him. Now, notice the nature of the call. Just step back from it just for a moment, right? The goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice the nature of the call in our lives as Christians. The Apostle Paul says that the, the way the call of God functions in our lives as Christians is that it is something that has happened to us in the past, we have been called by God to believe in Christ and to trust in Him, but then the call of God continues to ring in our ears. And it summons us so that we continue to pursue Christ, to know Him, and to live for Him, and to love Him, and to walk in obedience to Him until we finally are redeemed and know Him forever in eternity. This is the way the call of God functions in our lives as Christians. So that the call of God, in one sense, is not just a one-time event that happened way back then, but a continuing reality in our lives that calls us to pursue Christ so that we might know Him more until we know Him fully. And so what is the one thing that Paul was after in his life? The one thing that he was after, simply put, is Christ. To know Him now and to know Him in the life to come. I said it earlier, but my friends, listen, we are all, we are all pursuing something with a singular passion. We are all goal setters. We're all running for a prize. And, and, and you might not even be aware of it. You might not be conscious of it. But it's helpful for all of us just to take a few moments and to, to settle ourselves, to quiet ourselves, and to examine our own minds and hearts, to have a deeper self-awareness, to know what is it in my life that I'm after. It could be wealth. You know, it could be the security that wealth provides. It could be the, the, the ideal job. It could be the perfect spouse that you think will, will satisfy you and fulfill all your dreams. It could be the ideal family. It could be popularity. You just crave and want to be accepted by others and approved by others and praised by others. 
It could be any number of things. And in one sense, all of these things that I've just mentioned, none of them are necessarily wrong. In fact, they could be good gifts given to us by the Lord. But none of them are intended to substitute the one thing, the ultimate thing, for which we have been created and redeemed. Namely, to know Christ in all His fullness. And listen, my friends, if we want to go big in life, if we want our lives to matter, truly matter, now and for all eternity, then we must go small. We must find that one thing that matters most in life, namely the Lord Jesus, and go after him with singular devotion and passion. This is the one thing for which Paul lived. Now, I want us to consider, as we think about the one thing, I want us to consider the how, okay? So this is the one thing he's after. How does Paul go after the one thing? Notice in our text that there is one primary activity that's identified. So the one primary activity is both in verse 12 and in verse 14. Notice there in verse 12 he says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, Here it is, but I press on. There's the one activity that's really identified in our text, the primary activity. I press on to make it my own. And then if you look down in verse 14, we see the same thing. Verse 14, I press on. That's the same word, same activity. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting here because this word that is used, it's translated here in the English Standard Version, press on, is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses back in chapter 3, verse 6, when he says that before he became a Christian, he was a persecutor of the church. The word for, it's actually the same word that Jesus used when he spoke to the Apostle Paul and he said to the Apostle Paul, Why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That word persecuting is the same word. Paul was pressing the church, he was pursuing the church with ill intent, right? The word actually means, quote, to move rapidly and decisively toward an object, to hasten, to run, to press, to harass, to persecute. And so radical is the transforming power of the gospel that the Apostle Paul, before he encountered the living Christ, was pursuing the church in order to kill her. But now, having encountered the living, resurrected Christ, he is pursuing or chasing Jesus in order to know him. My friends, let me ask you, have you been changed by the transforming power of the gospel? If the gospel gets a hold of you, it will turn you inside and out. And you will have a new aim and passion and purpose and pursuit in your life. Notice how then Paul tells us he he pursues this one thing, Christ, and to know Him. He, He actually gives us insight into it. He says he does it by, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, I don't know if any of you 
I know many of you like basketball. I don't know if any of you know or many of you know that the NBA playoffs are going on right now. I'm, I'm sure many of you do know that. I'm sure there's some of you that have no idea and don't care. But the NBA playoffs are actually taking place right now. And uh, recently, I believe it was this last week, the Portland Trailblazers were playing the Oklahoma City Thunder, okay? And this is game seven, all right? And in game seven, so, so it's, a game, it's a series of seven games, and whoever wins game seven moves on, and whoever loses is disqualified, right? They go home. So at the end of game seven, it was a great game. The game was tied 115 to 115, okay? And there's a guard that plays for the Portland Trailblazers. His name is Damian Lillard. And he has the ball. There's 10 seconds left in the game. He crosses half court and he just stops. And all the players are standing there. They're kind of in their formation and everybody's waiting. He only needs two points to win the game. So people are expecting that he's going to drive to the basket or make a move or something. And he doesn't. He just stands there dribbling the ball at about half court. He lets the time run down all the way to about a second or two. He takes one step to the side because someone's guarding him and launches the ball from like half court. He hits the shot and everybody goes crazy. They went 118 to 115, right? Now, after the game, everybody wants to talk about Damian Lillard. Everybody wants to talk to him. They want to know, you know, what was going on and how he did this. And in particular, they want to know from Damian Lillard, what was going through your mind? What kind of mindset must you have in that moment, on the biggest stage, in that clutch moment, to think, I can make this shot? What's the psychology behind all of that? Now listen, I say all that to say, right now, here in the Scriptures, we have the greatest, one of the greatest spiritual athletes in the history of the church. And he gives us an insight into his mindset of pursuing Christ in one of the clutch moments, the most intense pressure moments of his life. Remember, the Apostle Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter. And the Apostle Paul in prison is saying, I'm pursuing Christ with all I have, with joy and with reckless abandon. So the question is, how do you do that, Paul? How do you pursue Christ in prison with joy and with singular focus and devotion? And he gives us this insight. I forget what is behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. And listen, my friends, there's some of us here this morning, and we, we need, we are stuck in our pursuit of Christ because we have a certain mindset, a certain spiritual psychology that is holding us back. And we need to forget certain things and we need to string forward with all our might. What are, what are the types of things that we need to forget? Well, there are definitely things to remember in the Christian life. So Paul tells us, and, and other authors in Scripture tell us, that we should remember God's fa uh, past faithfulness, and we should remember how He was good to us, and He fulfilled His promises so that we might have future hope and faith to move forward. So there are certain things in the Christian life we should remember. But the Apostle Paul knew what things he should remember, and he knew what things he should forget. There's a lot in the Christian life we need to forget. And in particular, I would say... Some things that some of us might need to forget are, on the one hand, the glory days, 
And on the other hand, the gory days. Some of us may need to forget the glory days. Some of us can get stuck in times past that rather, whether it was for us as individuals or for maybe our church, that were glorious days spiritually, right? Maybe we were uniquely pursuing the Lord with zeal or we were sharing our faith with others or our church was particularly um, making an impact in the community during that time. And, and so we just kind of get stuck there, right? We get kind of spiritually smug or satisfied. It's like we've started out on a race that's five laps and we ran the first lap and man, we killed it. We did really good and now we're done, right? I feel good about that. I'm finished. And, and perhaps for some spiritually, it's been decades and you're still living off of that. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, I forget what is behind. I mean, I glory in God's faithfulness and rejoice in how he was faithful to me, but, but I'm not, I'm not going to live there. There's more victories to be won for Jesus. I forget what is behind. I'm pressing on toward what is ahead. Others of us, we might not, we might not be stuck in glorying in the past, but we obsess about the gory days. Perhaps there was a period in your past where you blew it spiritually. You were not walking with the Lord. You made bad decisions that hurt yourself, that hurt others, and you dishonored the name of Christ. And there's no, there's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. You just blew it. And now, as you seek to run the race to pursue Christ, you're, just, you're carrying that weight of guilt that weight of shame and, and like there's it's, it's weighing you down. You can't make any progress. You're immobilized. You're paralyzed by it. And one of the things that I want to point out in this text to you is consider who's writing these verses. The Apostle Paul says, I forget what is behind. And the Apostle Paul knew some gory days. The Apostle Paul persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and even was responsible for killing other Christians. But the Apostle Paul here, he's running the race with a certain lightness, with a certain freedom, with a certain joy, because he is forgetting those things, knowing that he is not identified by his past, but rather identified by who he is in Christ and the redemption that Christ has won for him. And some of you, my friends, even this morning, you just need to, you need to let go of that guilt. You need to let go of that shame. Maybe your Christian life is just marked by a certain heaviness that's keeping you back. And there needs to be a lightness in your stride. There needs to be a freedom and a joy in you pursuing Christ in this race. And Paul's inviting you now, forget it. Forget what's behind. Repent of your sins. Look to Christ in faith. Receive his forgiveness. Trust that you've been clothed in his righteousness. Forget it, what is behind and strain forward to what is ahead. That's the second thing he says in terms of his mindset. He forgets certain things that are behind and then he strives forward to what's ahead. He says he strains forward. And here Apostle Paul points out to us again that the Christian life requires effort. 
You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul was writing young Timothy, who was a pastor, and he said to Timothy, train yourself, discipline yourself for godliness. And it's true that if we don't, we don't exert some effort, if we don't train ourselves, if we don't discipline ourselves for godliness, if, if we don't spend time in the Word and in prayer, if we don't spend time with other believers in worship and in community, then our race is probably not going to go very well. You know, people who never run shouldn't sign up a week in advance for a 3K or, or 5K or, or a half marathon, right? If they do, it's probably not going to go very well. And the same is true for us spiritually. Paul says here we are to pursue Christ in part by straining forward, by training and disciplining ourselves for the race. So let me ask you this, my friends. What is your spiritual mindset this morning? We see that Paul here, he's in prison. He's pursuing Christ with joy. Paul, we could say, is in the zone. And how? How does Paul remain in the zone? He says, in part, he forgets what is behind. Right? He's not immobilized by his past, whether it's the glory days or the gory days. And he keeps purposefully leaning forward to pursue Jesus. All right, so the one thing, the how, and then finally, the why. Why does Paul pursue Christ with singular devotion and zeal? There are many reasons I think we could give to this question. Why does he pursue Christ with this zeal and devotion? But there are two reasons in particular that come from our immediate text. The first reason is this. Paul pursues Christ because he's not already perfect. He's not already perfect. And actually, Paul emphasizes this point in our passage. Look there in verse 12. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this. Then he says it again, Not that I am already perfect. Then again in chapter 3, verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now, I think this does our souls good to just see here that the Apostle Paul acknowledges that he is not perfect. And at the same time as acknowledging that he is not perfect, we see that in this chapter, Paul is rejoicing in, celebrating in, enjoying God's salvation in Christ. So do you know what that means for each one of us as Christians? That means that we do not have to be perfect in order to enjoy Jesus and to enjoy our salvation. Amen? That is good news. We do not have to be perfect in order to enjoy Christ and the salvation that God has given us in Christ. We can be happy in Jesus and be imperfect. In fact, Paul strikes this important balance or tension within our passage as it relates to the Christian life. So, you know, one of the great dangers of the Christian life is that we would fall off into extremes, okay? And this is really true for any area of life. But, but the Bible, if we want to think about it, the Bible is, is the truth that God has revealed to us. And we want to remain in the tension of biblical truth. But oftentimes the temptation is to fall off into error or extremes on either side. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said it this way. Human nature is like a drunk peasant. Lift him into the saddle on one side, over he topples on the other side. 
And that's true, right? We all are, are, are naturally inclined to that. Like you put us on a horse and, and we are, tend to fall over on one side or on the other side. But the challenge is to remain in the tension of biblical truth. What Paul does here is on the one hand, he denies sinless perfection. And on the other hand, he avoids kind of a lawless immorality. Okay, And both of these are dangers in the Christian life. Some people, and you don't find it as much today, but sometimes you'll find folks this way. They will say, I'm going to avoid lawless immorality, right? I, I value obedience to Jesus. And then they move into the extreme of claiming a sinless perfectionism. They say, I've, I've reached a point where I don't sin anymore as a Christian. Most of the time when they do that, they have to redefine what they mean by sin. But they say, I've, I've reached a point where I'm, I'm mature in Christ. I'm, I'm not, I, I walk in perfect obedience. Paul says, no, I'm not perfect. He says, I, I haven't obtained it. I haven't arrived. On the other hand, though, there's another extreme where you can fall into lawlessness and immorality. And you'll find folks in this category that'll say, well, you know, I'm not perfect and there's no way I'm going to fall into the danger of sinless perfectionism and believing that about myself. I know I'm a sinner. And that's the reason why I believe in Jesus, because Jesus gives us grace and mercy and we're clothed in his righteousness. And so, you know, we don't need to be so concerned about obedience. Of course, we're not perfect. We can't be perfect. So why try? Just live and let live. And they walk in immorality, which is a distortion of biblical grace. The Apostle Paul, though, is right in the center, right? He says, I'm not perfect, but I have one aim, one ambition, one pursuit. It's to know and love and follow and obey Jesus. He's not in lawlessness. He's not claiming some kind of sinless perfectionism. He's pursuing Christ with singular devotion. And this is the space, my friends, that all of us as Christians want to find ourselves in. And I want to encourage you, I think that there are people in this room, by God's grace, that are in that space, and it's not wrong for us to acknowledge that. I wonder, like if it wasn't the Apostle Paul, I wonder if someone came to you and said, I have one ambition in life. And that is to know Christ. I wonder if some of us might be tempted to think, like, well, what's going on there? Is that person prideful? Are they being arrogant? Are they claiming that they don't have sin in their lives, that they've reached some state of perfection, that, you know, just one thing they care about is to know Christ? Well, well, don't you have sin in your life? See, Paul is able to say that there's a space here where I can say, I'm not perfect. I've got, I've got to change. I've got, I've got sin. I've got blind spots. I need to mature. I haven't obtained it. But at the same time, I have one singular purpose, devotion, and zeal, and that is to know Christ, and that's what marks my life. Paul has carved out that space for us as believers, and he's inviting us to step into it and to walk that type of life of obedience. I think there are folks here this morning who could say that characterizes my life. And I just want to say, if that's the case, that is wonderful. I encourage you, continue to pursue Christ with unrelenting devotion. 
The second reason, so we're on the why, right? The first reason that Paul pursues Christ to know him is because he's not yet perfect. He needs to. He needs to know Christ and become more like him. The second reason, this is where we'll, we'll wrap up, is because he belongs to Christ. Because he belongs to Christ. Notice this in verse 12. This is beautiful. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Here it is. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, Paul says at the end of the day, I don't pursue Christ in order that I might belong to him. I pursue Christ because I do belong to him. He pursues Jesus because Jesus pursued him. He has made Paul his own. And if you're a Christian, that's true of you this morning. It's as Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And you know, when Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, and he said that he was going to go to the cross in order that he might die to win their redemption, you remember the response of Peter? Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus responded to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? Jesus had an aim. He had a pursuit. And you know what it was? It was to honor his father by redeeming and saving us. We were his pursuit. We were his passion. He was going after us and he would not let anything stand in the way. He would remove all hindrances, all obstacles in order that he might pursue us and win our redemption. In fact, Luke tells us that although Jesus knew that Jerusalem was the place where he would be stretched out on the altar of the cross to suffer and to die for our sins, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. With unrelenting passion, with undivided devotion, with zeal and commitment, Jesus pursued us even unto death. He pursued us to the end because He loves us and He made us His own. And that, my friends, is why we should pursue Him. We are His, so we should pursue Him relentlessly to know Him, to love Him, to be with Him forever. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we will celebrate that by Jesus' life and death and resurrection, He has made us His own. And one of the things we can reflect on as we take the bread and the cup this morning is what is the one thing that now we are pursuing in our lives? May it be Christ. May it be to know Him and to love Him and to live for Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for your word and we're so thankful, Lord, for the example of the Apostle Paul. Father, we thank you that in your mercy and grace you have pursued us. And we thank you that in your mercy and grace you pursued us to the end to make us your own. And now, Father, I pray that that transforming power and love would invade the hearts of all who are here this morning. And I pray, Lord, that our lives would truly be marked by that type of singular devotion and love and passion. 
Lord, help us to be honest with You about what it is that we're truly pursuing in life. And Lord, I pray that that we would set our lives upon Christ to know Him. To know Him in His life and His death and His resurrection. To know Him fully, even as we will know Him fully when we are fully redeemed. Lord, take Your Word now and apply it to our lives, we pray. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen.